Hope y'all are doing well. We are in a sermon series called The Journey. Um, if you are here for the very first time, you'll see some people with these red books that say The Journey on it. Y'all hold them up for them. I forgot mine again because I don't ever need it. Carol, only Carol brought hers today. So uh, there we go. There's one. So you can grab one of those uh, off the table back here. It's a Bible reading plan throughout the entire year. So go back there and grab one. Keep it. There's plenty of them. Uh, you'll need that for this entire year. So you can read through the Bible uh, with us as a congregation throughout the entire year. Every six pages you read, it tells you what to read, and you write some notes. On the seventh page, it says sermon notes, and you can just write down some sermon notes. We've got so many, so please make sure you grab one, take it with you. Grab an extra one if you want to give away uh, one of those. It's just a Bible reading plan throughout the year and a place that you can write sermon notes every seven pages. Um, so you'll notice in it, if you have one, what we do is we, we provide for you four separate readings throughout the, throughout the month. Uh, and we pick one of those readings and we preach through it. So during January, uh, you had four separate readings. We picked the Psalms as you're reading through the Psalms and we preached through the Psalms during the month of January. Now, as we're in, in February, there's four different readings. We're going to pick Exodus slash Leviticus and we're going to preach through, through those, hence the Shepherd's Fields title. And then when we get to, I'm super excited, to March, you're going to have four separate readings. One of those is going to be Romans and we're going to go through the, the book of Romans, which I'm pumped about, Paul's systematic theology. So anyway, as we go on throughout the year, you'll get different, different things. We're going to preach through the Bible. Um, and as we're preaching through the Bible, the whole goal and the whole idea is that we want to take what you're reading and connect it up to kind of the big picture story of the Bible. So um, that's what we're doing this year as we're going through the, uh, the journey. So I encourage you to grab one of those and read with us. Uh, now, one other thing I should say is, we are today going to be in the book of Exodus. Last week, we were in the book of Exodus. Um, well, I lost my place in here, so I'm going to have to find it in just a second. But last week, we were in the books of, book of Exodus in chapter 18, uh, 17, 18. As we saw, if you're familiar at all with the story, Moses has been leading uh, the people out of captivity, captivity of, of Egypt, and he's taken them to the promised land. And as he's doing that, um, his father-in-law comes and pays him a visit and tells him that what he's doing isn't going to work out. It's going to be too difficult for him, um, and he needs to have some other leadership. And that's what we looked at last week and how the, the ideas of having shared leadership and a community of faith that operates that way and what are some of the things that we can do. So what we're going to do today is we're going to keep going in the exact same place. It finished in Exodus 18, um, verse 27. We're going to start at ch chapter 19 uh, and keep going. Now, I, I need to say this. Um, we're going to look at 19 and 20 today, and last, or last night, yesterday, as you were reading, um, your readings were in Exodus chapter 32, 33. Um, we're going to take the Exodus 32, 33 that you read this past week, and we're going to use that as the sermon next Sunday. So next week's sermon won't be um, in that week's readings. It's actually going to be Exodus 32. Uh, and we're going to put it in next week's sermon. But the reason why is because today as you're looking at chapter 19 and 20 and the giving of the Ten Commandments, uh, there's lots of talk. Uh, but the kind of the rest of the narrative, or as Paul Harvey would say, the rest of the story, maybe about three people understand what I'm talking about, um, that comes in, in chapter 32. So I want to make sure we preach chapter 32 next week so we can kind of see the rest of the story um, from what's happening today. And then that means we'll just have one sermon in the book of Leviticus rather than two, which is good for all of us. Because yeah, I don't know if y'all looked at Leviticus ever, but it's, it's crazy to think you're going to preach a preach a sermon out of it, and I think that, you know, you'll enjoy not hearing just a list of laws the entire time and asking, what does that mean? Why is that there? Because it's pretty difficult. So anyway, um, back to the text. Um, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to talk about a couple things, like how we got here, what's going on in the story, what are we looking at, et cetera, et cetera. So let me pray. And after that, we're going to do a baptism, which I'm super excited about. Um, Nick's being baptized today. Um, so it's going to be awesome. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for your love that you've given to us in Christ. Uh, thank you that this word does so many things. And I pray that this morning you would come now <clears throat> and you would use your word to do what you've promised that it would do. Uh, train us in righteousness, that it would convict us where we need to be convicted, that we would, would confess those things and that we would, because of your word, desire to walk in your statutes, desire to live for Christ. We love you that you would be so gracious to speak to us through this word. So we pray that we would come to it humbly. I pray for myself, Lord. I know that there's no possible way that I can try to preach 
at all any week ever without your spirit. And so I pray that you would, you would move me out of the way and fill me with the spirit and that everything I say will be from you, uh, that you would do a great work, not just in the people, but in me, Lord. I want to be changed by this as well. And we know that we would all give you the glory for it. We pray this in Jesus' name. <clears throat> Amen. So each week as we're looking at this, at going through the study called The Journey, one of the main things I want to do is try to help you see the little small story that you're reading here in the Bible. I want you to see how it connects to the big story of the Bible. The, the Bible itself is really one big story, which is that God created humans. He created mankind, and we willingly sinned. And when we willingly sinned, that, that separated us from God. And now we're on a trajectory, a chosen trajectory by us, to go to hell. And that in his infinite graciousness, in his infinite wisdom, he sent his own son, Jesus, to come to go and die that death that we deserved. And because of that, if we believe and trust that he died for us and that he has applied his righteousness to us, that we will be raised back up and that initial relationship that Adam had in the garden will have again and that we will live with him forever in heaven or the new heavens and the new earth one day. That's the big story. And so every little story you read, David and Goliath, the Ten Commandments, uh, the parting of the Red Sea, every little story has a facet, has something. It's a microcosm of that big story. And so my goal each week that I preach is to help you see the story that we're reading and how it is the small, a small microcosm story of the big story. And that's what's going on here. So if we're going to dive into Exodus and we're going to jump into a narrative, I think it's good for us to know where, where are we in this big story. So here's what's going on. God created Adam. Um, Adam and Eve willingly sinned. They're, they're cast out of the garden. They have lots of kids. <laughs> and their kids have kids and their kids have kids and their kids have kids, whatever. So we get down there and all of a sudden when we get to Genesis 12, there's this man named Abram, a descendant of Adam. And he looks at him and he says, Abram, you're going to be the, the chosen father of my people. And Abram's like, all right, um, that sounds good. And so it's now everybody that's born in the line of Abraham, all of his kids and grandkids are all going to be this collective family called the Israelites. And so Abraham has children. We eventually get to his grandson, Joseph, um, who out of the 12, he was given uh, from, from his dad this awesome coat uh, and they didn't like him. And so they, they, they sold him. They said they killed him. They sent him away over to Egypt. And they, they were still here. All the family's still over here. This is, this is the, the promised land that he had given to Abram. And they kicked Joseph out. Well, all of a sudden a famine came. And so they left and they went over where the food was in Egypt. And lo and behold, there's their one brother, that uh, Joseph, that they had thought that was dead, but he's not. He has worked himself up. He's a pretty organized guy, get it done kind of guy, works real hard. He had worked himself out of prison up. And he's second in command in Egypt under Pharaoh. And so he's got all this food. He's got all this stuff. He takes his family in. They're going to live in Egypt now. They're going to be with Joseph because there's no food over there. They're in Egypt. There they are. Well, the first Pharaoh dies. The second Pharaoh comes in. And the second Pharaoh and, and Joseph don't have an agreement. They don't, they're not boys. They're not, they don't hang out. They don't do stuff together. They don't chill. So all of a sudden, Joseph finds he and his family, instead of being uh, taken care of by Pharaoh and part of, of this, the second Pharaoh takes all of the Israelites and enslaves them and makes them slaves in Egypt. And all of a sudden you get to the book of Exodus. Moses comes up in leadership and the people of Israel, by the leadership of Moses, eventually leave being enslaved from Egypt and come back over to where they used to live uh, in the promised land. Well, this leaving of slavery and coming back over to the promised land um, is where we're going to find our story. They're not yet at the promised land. They're, they're on the trek complaining. They're horrible travelers. They're like three-year-olds. Are we there yet? What are you doing to us? We're hungry. We're thirsty. Feed us. Why are you doing this to us? It's better to go back and be slaves. All kinds of complaining and, and arguing, bickering, whatever. Uh, that's where we are in the story is as they're being led out uh, to go to the promised land, they're on their trek. They meet up with, with Moses' father-in-law, and he's telling them, hey, you need to give leadership. That's where we were last week. And here we are, again, as they're continuing their trek to the promised land. Um, they're going to come up to Mount Sinai, and here the Lord's going to give them the Ten Commandments. Now, how does that little story connect to the big story? Well, here's how. Just like the Israelites were enslaved, we too, before Christ, were enslaved. And as they were in slavery in Egypt and brought out into the promised land by this man, this mediator man, leader Moses, in the same way, we were entrenched in sin. We were slaves to sin. And we have a greater mediator than Moses. We have Jesus who brought us 
out of slavery to sin leads us into slavery to righteousness or leads us into Christ. And as Moses brings them to the promised land, Jesus leads us to our promised land, heavens and the new earth. And so every story in the Bible is a microcosm of the big story, which is one day where we'll in Christ be saved forever. So that's where we are in the Bible. We're, we're watching the Israelites on their, on their trek. Um, and so we're going to go here. If you're familiar at all with Exodus chapter 20, you can even look right now. You'll see that this is the Ten Commandments. This is, this is where the Ten Commandments are given. Um, so let's do this first. Um, can you name all Ten Commandments without looking? Can you name all Ten Commandments without looking? Let's do it this way. For as many years as you've been a Christian, can you name that many commandments? Maybe that's easier or nicer. Or maybe that's even worse because you're like, dang, I've been a Christian for a long time and I still can't do it. Um, so here, here's my point, right? We know the Ten Commandments. We've read the Ten Commandments. But likely, um, all of us should do a little bit better, in-depth, more study, and at least know them to where we can even name them. Not that we would have to. I have this little gift when I was growing up. I was a member of St. Andrew's Baptist Church in Columbia, and I did all the plays, and I, you know, it was a pretty traditional Baptist kind of church. And when I was in this, I say Baptist because that's what you, when you're traditional, it's Baptist. So anyway, when I was there, I was in Angels Aware. Anybody in Angels Aware, a little musical? Maybe it's just me. All right, so Angels Aware, we sang this little song called The Perfect Ten. Um, number one, we've just begun. God should be first in your life. Number two is the, I- I'm not going to sing it because I'm not good. Number two is the idol rule. Those graven images aren't nice. And so we had this little song, and I just because of that, can remember the perfect 10. I can remember, and so I, I even Googled it this past week. Um, number one, we've just begun. I, I had to type it out. I was afraid to Google perfect 10. I was afraid what that might yield. So I, I Googled the, the sentence of the song, and as I did it, I brought up the little video and sh- showed the song to my kids, and we sang the perfect 10 the, 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 about the 10 commandments, and I'm teaching them the song now too. Um, it's a me- great memorable, memorable way to uh, think about the Ten Commandments. So here we are, as we're looking at this, we're going to be talking about the Ten Commandments, which are in chapter 20, and we're in chapter 19. So why is it that we're looking at chapter 19 and not just going straight to chapter 25? Well, because I think chapter 19 for us sets the parameters or gives us the landscape of, in the narrative of how we're supposed to look at and think on the Ten Commandments. There's a lot going on in 19 that helps us understand chapter 20. So today we're going to look at six important features of the Ten Commandments. Um, So we're not going to necessarily, until point four, do a a study of each commandment. um, But we're going to do it actually pretty pretty fast. um, Because there's some things I want you to see about the Ten Commandments that are maybe best looked at at a broader kind of spectrum uh, in chapters 19 and 20. So... Look at verse 1 with me. I'm going to read chapter 19 so you can get the entire perspective. Um, Maybe a couple interruptions. Um, So, on the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they set out from Rephidim and came to the wilderness of Sinai. And there they camped on the wilderness, in the wilderness. Uh, There Israel encamped before the mountains. That's, That's Mount Sinai. Uh, it's in verse 11, I think it says that. So verse 3, while Moses went up to God. Amazing, right? Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him from the mountain. Just, just consider, as we're going through this, some of the amazing things that are going down here. Literally, God's up on a mountain, and a man, just like you and me, is walking, and a voice calls him to come up to the mountain. And here's some of the, with the way Moses, who writes Exodus, explains how this happens. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, thus says, you, sh- you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, so he starts out with the gospel, how he, he pulled them out of slavery Verse 5, the covenant. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my, this is a great title, treasured possession among all the peoples. There's all kinds of peoples. And the Israelites 
compared to all of them, are going to be my treasured possession. The rest of them will get to see how you're my treasured possession. Amazing language. For all the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. That's the covenant. Moses goes and tells them the covenant. So Moses came and called all the elders of the people and set before them all the words that the Lord had commanded him. All the words of this covenant. Verse 8, the people agree to the covenant. We hear that and we say yes. Verse 8, the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Yes, we say yes to that covenant. That sounds great. Treasured possession. And Moses reported the words of the people back to the Lord. They said yes, basically. And the Lord said to Moses, behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud. Uh, remember, as the Lord led them out, uh, he, pillar of fire, pillar of cloud. So he's reminding them of what he's, how he's been faithful to them. And he's going to lead them out by a thick, show them uh, this thick cloud again. That the people may hear when I speak with you. And may also, I love this phrase, believe you forever. Um, then Moses told the words of the Lord, of the people to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, all right, so here's the deal. If you've agreed to this covenant, it's time to come see me. I want you to come up and be near me and, and be near me. So if you're going to do that, you've got to prepare yourselves. Verse t- middle of nine. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. And on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. You shall set limits for the people all around, like set limits all around the mountain, saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever, this mountain's so holy when the Lord comes down. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, that person, uh, but he shall be stoned or shot uh, with an arrow. Whether beast or man, whatever it's a a man or or, or an animal, He's gonna, he will not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, set them apart, told them to go through all this, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not even go near a woman. On the morning of the third day, so here comes the, the, the third day. Here's, here's the dissension of the Lord onto the Mount Sinai. What are some of the amazing features of this mountain? Here it is. On the morning of that third day, there were thunders, there were lightning. There's the thick cloud, again, reminding them of how he led them out of captivity. On the mountain, and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. The, the mountain itself is shaking so loud. Down at the camp, they're hearing this. And Moses brought the people out of the camp. Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. That's crazy language, right? Think about that for a second. I want you to meet God today. You've prepped for three days. It's time to go literally meet God. That's amazing language. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. They wouldn't go any further. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because of the Lord. More descriptions of this amazing dissension of the Lord onto this mountain. Because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like a smoke of a kiln. And the whole mountain trembled greatly. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai right there to the top of the mountain. And here it is when he finally descends and he's there. Listen to this. The Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain. This is where God was. And Moses went up. Just think about that for a second. Moses going up this mountain to God. Crazy. And the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people. Lest they break through to the Lord and to look and many of them will perish. And let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves. Only the priests can come, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate, um, and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up and bring Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. So we see this. Amazing description before we even get to the Ten Commandments of all the things that are going on. And so the first feature regarding the Ten Commandments I want you to see, the first feature of the Ten Commandments, is that the commandments themselves were given to us by a holy God. The chapter 19 is given to us before we get to the commandments to help us understand this amazing, holy, and I would also add, which I should have, I could have, since I'm in charge of the PowerPoint, um, gracious God. Gracious God. The commandments are given to a by a holy and gracious God. Amazingly gracious to them. 
So let's look at some of these language. First you hear in verse 4, you yourselves, before anything starts happening, before he mentions the covenant or anything, he said, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you out myself. So he mentions this eagle. This eagle can be thought of in two ways, a bird of prey and a bird of rescue, a bird of prey regarding the Egyptians. And they felt the full force of that as they all drowned when the waters descended on them, but also the bird of rescue for Israel. And so I killed your enemies and I brought you out. So he, he reminds them how he brought them out of slavery. This is, this is gospel language. Before he gets to anything, he's already prefacing it with gospel language, reminding them how he brought them out of slavery. And then says this amazing covenant right here, the promise that he makes to them. He tells them two things they need to do in verse five. You'll obey my voice and keep my, you would think he's gonna say commandments, right? But he doesn't, he says covenant. Commandment still hadn't even been given. All throughout Genesis, all the way up to Exodus chapter 19, the thought process of people that are the people of God, what God has always wanted is not that they keep rules. It's trust me, be my people, have faith in me, believe in me, keep my covenant. So he's, he's, he's wanting them to realize that faith is what God wants, not law keeping and so he, he makes this covenant, and it's, it's two things. Obey my voice, keep my covenant. And if you do that, then there's this amazing language that's descriptive of you. You're my treasured possession. You're my kingdom of priests. You're my holy nation. I mean, that's, that's amazing language he uses. Nothing here has to do with, you know, be a good rule keeper. Those, those commandments are coming. But as we get into the commandments, I want us to realize the holiness of God is being accentuated for us. He makes this covenant. We know that they eventually break the covenant later on. Um, and that's why he gives them, this is why I said gracious. He could have just said, you broke the covenant. It's over. <laughs> but he doesn't. He gives them a new covenant in Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, and the New Testament. You broke the first covenant in my graciousness. I'm going to give you a new covenant. And I'm going to write my spirit and write my laws on your heart. Give you my spirit. And so he gives them this new covenant. And we see that they agree to the covenant in verse 8. Yes, we want that. That sounds awesome. And then it even uses the language of faith right there in verse 9 to say where the, the way this demonstration of faith is what's needed in order to keep the covenant. And then we see from 7 really to, the 20, to 25, the, the expectations of consecration of the people. This is what the Lord expects you in the way that you should consecrate yourself because he's wanting them to understand the holiness of God. So um, the word awesome has been hijacked by, I don't know, Saturday Night Live and the Lego movie. You know, everything's awesome. Everything, you know, so, but the, the word awesome uh, shouldn't necessarily be hijacked because everything's not awesome. Everything's not awesome. The word awesome, I mean, awestruck terror, fear, trembling, because this thing that I'm seeing is amazing. God is awesome, and nothing else is. Everything's not awesome. Whatever his name is in the Lego movie's wrong. What's his name? Blaine? I don't know. Um, totally wrong. My kids will correct me later. So everything's not awesome. As a matter of fact, um, a lot of times, and, and rightly so, as we begin worship, Jordan will say things like, we want the presence of the Lord to come to be here with us. And we kind of glibly accept, yeah, that's what we want. But if we read this, if the presence of the Lord really came in this room, we wouldn't kind of just glibly agree with Jordan. Yeah, that's what I want. If the presence of the Lord came and his awesomeness, we would be like these people, which you see later on in, in the end of 20, trembling of fear and saying, we don't even want to be his presence anymore. Moses, you go talk to him. I can't even, I can't even talk to God. So while we rightly want the presence of the Lord here, I think that if we really consider what we're saying, then we would be a little more awestruck by his awesomeness and not just think it's, you know, ho-hum, any big deal. Presence of the gods here, I'm gonna go get a burger later. Um, like, it's amazing as he tries to help us understand his holiness. He tells them to wash all their clothes, to not engage in any sexual activity for three full days, and that's going to be things that are going to consecrate them. He tells them that they can't touch the mountain, showing that the holiness of God is going to descend here, and the mountain itself is holy now, that when he comes, before he's even come, 
thunder and lightning and the entire mountain are shaking, demonstrating to us the, the, the um, amazing holiness of God. He comes down in a thick cloud, reminding them of how they were led out of captivity. The entire mountain is wrapped in smoke. He tells the people not to walk any further or they'll die. And he tells the priests to, priest to completely consecrate themselves. So here we see, like, it's not that he wants the people to be holy so much as he's trying to demonstrate the magnitude of his own holiness for the people to understand. So we shouldn't go into the Ten Commandments too far without realizing, I should say it this way, we shouldn't consider the Ten Commandments and miss God and miss his holiness. The Ten Commandments were given to us by a holy God, a very holy God. And now we get into verse 25 where it gets a little interesting. 24, 25, this Lord said, Lord said to Moses, Go down. All right, he's been up there. He tells him to go down. And next time you come up, bring Aaron with you. But right here he's telling him to go down and do not let the priests and the people come up or I'm going to kill them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. He told them. That told them makes me think. What did he tell them? What did he tell them? Commentators are saying two things. He either told them not to come up or he told them not to come up, and he told them the Ten Commandments. It's one of the both. Um, I think it's the first one. He told them not to come up, and he went down with his people, and that he actually received the Ten Commandments in the congregation of the people, that he didn't um, receive the Ten Commandments for the Lord, and then go down and say, don't come up, here's the Ten Commandments. I think that the Lord's booming, thunderous voice um, told all the people all the Ten Commandments at that time. Uh, and that's why when he says he told them, I think he tells them to stay because if you get into verse 1, as soon as it says, remember, there's no chapter divisions, there's no verses. It's not like, okay, and the next day, like here it is. Go down there and tell them, as it says in verse 24, not to come up. And then as soon as the next sentence starts, God spoke these words. And if God speaks, it's booming. That's, that's what the whole chapter 19 is helping us see. God speaking booming words. And so Moses goes down and tells them to stay here. And then from the mountain, the Lord gives the Ten Commandments, or it says the Ten Words here, saying. So I think that what's going on here is that God's going to give the Ten Commandments or the Ten Words to all the people to hear. Gracious. What a, what a gracious God he does that. Eliminating the mediator. Eliminating the mediator. Now we're going to see at the, at the end of chapter 20, um, towards the end of chapter 20, the people beg God for the mediator again. Mistake, no question. But he eliminates the mediator and he tells them all. Um, so this holy God has set Mount Sinai completely ablaze, tells them of their rescue out of slavery, and calls them now to be holy as he is holy. And he's going to give them the Ten Commandments that help them how to do, know how to do that. Now, so we get to verse 1. And God speaks all the words saying, and then most of us jump past verse 2 and go right into verse 3 to the Ten Commandments. What are they? But I don't want to do that. As a matter of fact, so much so, I'm going to take verse 2 out and make it a, an entire feature. Verse 2. I am Yahweh, the Lord Yahweh. I am Yahweh, the Yahweh, your God. I am the Lord, your God. And then notice this language. Notice this language. Before we get to um, any Ten Commandments, any rules, it's got this gospel saturation uh, words in verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So he reminds them, the Israelites, that he brought them out of slavery. So the verse 2, uh, the number 2 I should say, is the commandments are prefaced by gospel language. And I would say, and thereby give us the gospel pattern. They give us the gospel pattern. So when they hear this, I brought you out of uh, slavery in Egypt, we hear, we should hear as the church, Romans 6, 6 and 7, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So we're not enslaved to sin anymore for he who has died has been set free from sin and now we're enslaved to righteousness. And so as we hear the Ten Commandments, we should remember just as they were enslaved in Egypt, we were enslaved to sin. And as they were brought out of Egypt, we have been brought out of our slavery to sin. And so it sets up for us, I think, this gospel pattern, which is grace is given. That's why he tells them the gospel in verse 2. And then the commandments are given after that. And the adherence to or the obeying of the Ten Commandments 
is because grace has been given first. So grace is given now. I joyfully want to obey these things. Not I need to joyfully, I need to do everything I can to obey these so that now I can be right with God. It's setting up a gospel pattern for us right here in the Ten Commandments that he reminds us of this gospel language first. And now we desire to do the will of God or obey the Ten Commandments because we have been saved, not to earn salvation. So this gospel pattern has been set up for us. Number three, um, before we dive into a, a, a study of each one, I want you to notice something else, that these... Ten commandments are actually arranged in an intentional pattern. Third feature of the gospel, I'm sorry, third feature of the Ten Commandments is that they are arranged intentionally. They're arranged intentionally. If you've studied the New Testament at all, you've heard God or Jesus has given the two greatest commandments. Number one, Matthew 22:37, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Strength. The second greatest commandment, Matthew 22:39, to love your neighbor as yourself. The Ten Commandments are all summarized in those two statements. And so the Ten Commandments themselves are arranged intentionally. Specifically, the first four commandments are dealing with that, that greatest commandment, Matthew twenty two thirty seven, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The next five, five through 10, the, the next six, I should say, are arranged from Matthew twenty two thirty nine, to love your neighbor as yourself. So really, the Ten Commandments are two sections. Number one, Commandments one through four, love God, and they deal with vertical. It's all vertical. Me and God. It has nothing to do with other people. Verse four commandments are vertical, me and God. And as that's given to me, then we'll move to the second six, which are um, the horizontal commandments. Matthew twenty two thirty nine to love your neighbor as yourself. And those tell me how to interact with other people. So the first four are vertical, the second four are horizontal. Now here's the key thing. The key thing about noticing the intentionality that they're given to us. It's interesting that he doesn't do a God one, then a man one, then a God one, and then two man ones, then another God one, and then three man ones. He doesn't do it that way. He gets all four vertical and then all four horizontal. The reason why is, sure, we can keep these other six. We can, just with our own willpower. Don't kill, don't lie, don't steal, don't commit adultery, honor my father and mother, don't covet. Like, I can do those things, right? However, the Lord isn't just looking for you to follow rules. Instead, he wants you to, because you keep these vertical, because you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, because you do that, now the basis by which I will obey the horizontal is because of my love for God. So he starts with the vertical, addressing our heart first, and then says, now that you love me, now that you are mine, now that you keep the vertical man commands, now you have the ability in a way that honors God to go and keep the horizontal commands. So they're arranged intentionally. Now, we finally reached a, uh, a study of, of all 10 of them. I just want to point out something I think is interesting. Um, John Selhammer, Old Testament scholar, you've probably heard me quote him a lot of times. He does something pretty interesting. He takes the first two commandments in verses 2 all the way down to 6, and he makes them one commandment. He says the language of the Hebrew can, in his opinion, be put into one. That would make number 1 and 2 as one, leaving nine. However, he knows that there's 10, the Decalogue, there's 10 of them. And so he says, I'm going to go to the very end, and I'm going to make um, the do not covet. He's going to take that out and say, do not covet your your neighbor's house, do not covet your neighbor's wife. And he makes two there. So he has a three and seven breakdown. I'm not going to talk about it any more than that, but besides just to say, I think that's interesting. And, you know, he's way smarter than me. So, but I'm going to go with the old traditional method. But I, think, I think that's probably pretty safe to do. Um, so we're going to look at the Ten Commandments in a little bit more in depth. Um, I would refer you to, the, if you want an in-depth study on the Ten Commandments, um, Dr. Blankenship the other elder here at, at Remedy. He's not a doctor. I just like to do that. Next time you see him, I always call him Dr. Blankenship. He's going to love it. Um, he actually did a 10-sermon series on the Ten Commandments. And so he did an entire sermon on each one. So if you want like a more in-depth study uh, on this, I'll just see him. He'll give you, this is me in point four out of six, giving you like 10 subpoints real fast. He can give you a whole lot more than this. Um, but before we go into it, we're going to look at something. Um, the fourth feature of the Ten Commandments is this. The Ten Commandments for us display their attributes of God to us. So I'm going to look at these Ten Commandments in a certain way. 
Um, yes, we're going to ask two questions. The first question, yes, we want to know what the commandment means. But we don't want to just know what the commandment means. What does it mean? Okay, I'm going to do it. Got that? What's next? Instead, we're going to ask two questions. You can go ahead and put up number four. The commandments um, display to us the attributes of God. So we're going to ask two questions. First, what does the commandment mean? But more than that, we're going to drive down a little bit deeper and say, then what does that tell me about God? Because here's the thing. You can find out the commandment and find out what it means and keep it. But what I would desire and what the Lord would desire is not just that you know the commandment, but that you drive down deeper and say, what does that commandment then teach me about God? If it teaches me something about God and I know him and I love him and I think that I find out this, this thing about him, then once I know that, that's going to be the thing that's going to help me keep the commandment. So I don't want to just know what it means. I want to know what it has to do about God. And as I see who God is, I know who God is, understand more about him, then I want to keep it. So we're going to ask two questions. And that's why this fourth feature says, reveals to us the attributes, or displays to us the attributes of God. So two questions we're going to ask as we go through each one. Commandment number one, verse three. You shall have no other gods before me. Verse 3 says, you have, have no other gods before me. This is absolute monotheism. This is basically what he's calling for. Absolute monotheism. In one fell swoop, he destroys atheism and polytheism. He destroys the idea that there is no God. He destroys the idea that there are many gods. He says, there is only one God, and I'm that God, and you shall have no other gods. It dispels both atheism and, like I said, it also addresses a deep uh, human problem that we all have, which is idolatry. So what does the commandment mean? It means this. Do not serve any other God over the God. Do not serve any little G God over the capital G God. There's only one God, and you should believe him. Martin Luther, I think it's in the commentary on Galatians, um, said, if you follow the first commandment, you'll follow the rest. If you believe and say, I will have no other gods before this God, then the other nine will fall in place. So what does it teach us about the Lord? It teaches us that he is a jealous God for his glory and will not share it with anybody else. He doesn't want you to think that there are other gods that, that are worthy of any glory. He doesn't want you to think that you are worthy of glory, that you can be a glory robber. Instead, he says, all of the glory goes to him. You shall have no other gods except for him. Now, the reason why I think Salehammer connects the second one and makes it one is because the second one is almost identical. The first one teaches this absolute monotheism. The second one just basically says no idols. So the second commandment is, you shall not make, carve, um, have any likeness of anything. So it says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that's in heaven or above, da, da, da. So you can see it's very similar and it even roots it in the same reason. Verse five, you shall not bow down to them or serve them for, there's the argument, I, the Lord, am, am a jealous God. So the second one is don't have any idols. It means very similar to the, to the commandment one that uh, don't serve any other gods and it teaches us the same thing that the Lord our God is a jealous God. So if you want to make a distinction between the two, you can say the first commandment is absolute monotheism. The second one is no idols. But they are similar. So that's the first two. Remember, all of these are pointing us to the vertical nature of, of obeying commandments. Here's the next one. I, I think that out of all of them, this was my, maybe my favorite one study this week. I heard somebody reference something once that I, I, regarding this that I'd never heard before a few months back. And I was like, how have I never heard that? But that's awesome. Uh, and as I studied it, I think it's pretty awesome. Look at this. Verse 7, commandment 3. You shall not take the name of the Lord, Yahweh, your God, in vain. And what does vain mean? It means futile, empty of substance. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. The, the word take here is tricky because normally as we've heard this, we commonly think it pertains to our speech. We shouldn't say things in the name of the Lord that seem and make him sound like it's empty or that he's empty or that he's pointless or that he's empty of substance. That's kind of the, the way it's always been thought. This word take though, Hebrew, can be translated bear or carry. So it says you shall not bear or carry, as a believer in Jesus, you shouldn't, as a believer in God, Yahweh, you shouldn't take on his name and say, I am affiliating or I'm following him and walk through life in such a way that's 
filled with vanity, that's filled with emptiness of substance. It's an interesting way to think about it. Um, Think of it this way, maybe. Maybe this is easier. A wife takes on her husband's name. Maybe think of take as that way. I'm taking on my husband's name. Therefore, everything about this family now, I am with. And I'm going to take it in in an empty of substance, kind of futile, meaningless kind of way. So what does this commandment mean? It does mean, I think, that it's commonly mean that you don't take the names, the God's name falsely or use it meaninglessly. But I also think it can be understood as you, as a believer in Yahweh or a believer in Jesus, you should not bury or carry God's name with you, in you, throughout your entire life and say that you're a believer in Jesus and then live your life in a vain way that's empty of substance or showing that you're going to live in a futile way and thereby saying this, this name that I'm bearing means nothing. That's not how you're supposed to live your life. Again, this, this commandments are all about our vertical relationship with God. And he's saying, if you're going to be a believer, then you're going to live in a way that's not vain, but instead full of life in Christ, full of substance. So what then does it teach us about God? It teaches us that he is worthy for us. Um, he is worthy then for us to take his name to every place we go. He is worthy when we come into worship when we come here, that because he's worthy, we need to not just kind of emptily, is that a word, emptily? Um, with an empty mind, sing songs on a screen. Instead, we're supposed to think deeply about what we're singing because we don't take the name of the Lord on our shoulders in vain, but instead, because we're singing out to him, we're going to think about what we're singing and thereby let our heart understand it and give back to him all that he's worthy. Or as we go, we don't live such a life that says, ah, uh, I can do whatever I want. I have the Lord's name, you know, on me, but I can do whatever I want. We don't, we don't live, instead it teaches us that he's worthy for us to carry his name throughout our life, dis- demonstrating to this world that he is full of substance. He is, because we're children of God, it's full of meaning. That's, that's the third commandment. Commandment four. That was my favorite. I thought it was pretty awesome. Fourth one, remember the Sabbath. Maybe I like this one too. So <laughs> remember the Sabbath. Verse eight, commandment four. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. So the fourth one is, remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Now, what does this mean? Well, the Lord actually explains it to us in the book of Exodus just a few chapters later. If you are reading this week, you'll remember Exodus chapter 31, starting at verse 12. He expresses it to us. Now, here, I want you to do this, okay? Because I know that we're, we are in the New Testament times. We don't even set aside Saturday as our Sabbath, that we worship on the new day, Sunday. We're not under the law because Jesus fulfilled the law for us. All these things that you believe and therefore Sabbath, you know, means something different for me. I still work. I still walk. I don't follow these things. Uh, Sometimes I might cut my grass on Sunday. I don't do that, but that's, you know, it's just because the neighbors know I'm a preacher and I don't want them to have wrong thoughts. So anyway, so I want you to just I want you to, what I want you to do is as we read the description of the Sabbath to the Israelites in Exodus, I want you to let the full weight of what he's trying to communicate regarding the Sabbath hit you. He uses really strong language to describe the Sabbath. The Lord said to Moses, you are, I'm in verse 12 of chapter 31. And the Lord said to Moses, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between you and me. Um, throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. I set you apart. I make you holy. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. It's pretty strong language. Whoever does any work on it, um, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. That's amazingly strong language. Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath shall be put to death. Now, he said that twice. Pretty strong language regarding the Sabbath. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days 
the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested. Roots it in creation there. He does the same, same thing back over here in verse 20. If you look, I'm sorry, in chapter 20, back over in chapter 29, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. The seventh day is Sabbath to the Lord. On you shall not do any work, not just you, not your son, not your daughter, not your female servant, not your, female, not your male servant, not your livestock, not your goats, not your pigs, not your cousins, nobody. You know, just fill it in. Or the sojourner, not even the person that comes and is not even part of this deal. No one does anything. And then it says, and he roots it in creation. When you see the word for or because, it's always an argument. For in six days. Why? Because in creation, the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in it. And he rested on the seventh day. And since the Lord rested on the seventh day, we should. Therefore, the Lord blessed that Sabbath day and made it holy. All right, so here's the deal. Um, there are two active verbs in this commandment. Remember and keep. These are what we're supposed to do. Therefore, the Sabbath, which for us is Sunday, is supposed to have some things. Number one, it's supposed to be a day of remembrance, a day set aside where throughout the entire day, you're doing all that you can to remember Jesus, what he's done for you. It's a day of gospel saturation. It's a day of remembering, 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 recalling. That's why you you come to church on Sunday, because likely this is where you're going to hear much gospel, if you will. Um, And as you go out to lunch and as you go out to dinner, there still should be conversations around. The day is set aside for gospel saturation. Not only that, he says to keep it holy. He tells you to keep the day holy by setting it aside for God. It's the day for Jesus, for you to worship him and remember what he's done. You need a Sabbath every week. Every week, you need to have a day of rest. So, um, I I know I say this quite often, and I'm going to have to keep hammering it home. The Sabbath, for us, the day Sunday, is a day for you to saturate yourself with the gospel. Which means, the place that you're going to be able to do that the best is with your family of faith. So, coming here is not something that's kind of in the wind optional. If nothing else is going on. It's absolutely essential. And we noticed in Exodus 31 the the strong language the Lord builds around the Sabbath just to help us see that it's crucial that you be with your family of faith, your community of faith, every Sunday setting it aside. Nothing should come in the way of that. It's very crucial language. And he tells us to keep it holy. That means it's God's day, not your day. Not your day. Um, one other thing I want to say, and this is just, I think, important for this, this generation. Um, as I'm 40 now, I <laughs> can't believe it, I'm 40, um, I have noticed something different about this generation compared to some of the previous generations, which is the previous generations seem to work harder. And so I want to point out one little thing to you, and I'm not saying you don't work hard, I'm just saying maybe everybody else your age doesn't work hard. Um, this, is, <laughs> this is what I noticed. I want you to notice something with me. In verse 9, six days you shall labor and do all your work. The implicit teaching there is this. Christians specifically on the work days are not supposed to be lazy. You're supposed to work, not just that, work hard. Maybe the reason why the Sabbath, a day of rest isn't so important is because your other six days are also quite restful because you don't work hard right? So if you worked hard those six days, you would guard that day as, I am rest. I'm not doing a thing. It's for the Lord. I'm gospeling. That's all I'm doing. Thinking on Jesus, what he's done. I don't want to work hard this day because I work hard the other days. Just an idea. I think that's very important for us, especially what I've seen in this generation. Um, I, no. So anyway, work, I was going to tell you a story that frustrated me one day, but I'm not going to. So work hard, And as it tells us to work hard, but the seventh day, verse 10, is a day for Sabbath. We need to be the kind of people that work hard. What does this teach us? It teaches us that God is a working God, a hard worker, therefore we should be. That God's the creator. He created, he roots it in creation. That God is sovereign and that God cares for us so much that he teaches you to work hard and to rest. He cares about you that much to help you see those things. So work hard. Now I know our American work week's only five days, but still you should work hard on Saturday doing something. Um, and set aside completely Sunday for, for us. Now, for, for some of you that have to work on Sundays, it can't be, but you need to have another day. 
you know, I'm going to brag on Jordan here for a second. Um, Jordan works six, six days a week. This is a work day for him. As soon as he leaves here, he goes up to Apple and works again. But he takes Wednesday and he sets it aside and he Sabbaths completely on Wednesday. He does nothing on Wednesday. He works hard six days a week and Sabbaths completely on Wednesday. Mine's Friday. I don't do anything on Friday at all because um, I work on Sundays and I can't work. I can't Sabbath on Saturdays. Like my mind's crazy on Saturdays thinking about Sundays and I do a good bit of work on Saturdays. But Friday for me, Jordan Wednesday. If you don't work on Sundays, it should be Sundays. But you need to have a day set aside of this is the Lord's. This is the Lord's. So um, keep the Sabbath. Now this is where we transition into um, the horizontal ones. We transition into the horizontal ones. So this one is honor your father and mother. I'll go through them much faster. I'm sorry I'm taking so long. Honor your father and mother. Uh, fifth commandment. What does it teach? What does the commandment mean? Honor uh, has this, wor- this word honor carries with it weight. In other words, it, it teaches us the proper perspective of weight or respect that the position of parents demands and therefore we should respect and obey our parents uh, and take that role as their children seriously or as parents take that role seriously to our children. Um, it, what it teaches us about God is that he, like parents, has ultimate authority and that he is due all the respect that he should be given and that he's also generous to us. It teaches us that he's generous because if we obey our parents, God gives us longer life. And so it teaches us that he's generous. In other words, the more you obey your parents, the more you do right things and make wise choices, you'll live longer. The, may you do, the more you don't obey your parents and the more you make wrong choices, the less likely you'll live longer because you make poor decisions. Um, so setting up, I think, a good principle for us. Next one. Um, this is verse 13, commandment number six, pretty straightforward. You shall not murder. One commentator put this way, I think is the best way. One shall not put to death anyone improperly for selfish reasons without any authorization. Or in other words, you cannot kill anyone unlawfully. Um, Which is why it's such an affront to the American system that abortion is not against the law. Anyway, what does it teach us then about God? That God's the giver of life. And there is not one image bearer that should ever kill another image bearer ever. Jesus also in Matthew chapter 5 helps us see that even anger can be equivalent to murder. So it's not just about the act. It's about your heart. It's about your heart. And if you have anger, that's the equivalent of murder. So it teaches us those things. Next one, pretty straightforward. You shall not commit adultery. That's verse 14, commandment number 7. The purpose of this commandment is to promote purity. The idea of this is to help you love Purity. The commandment prohibits any man or any woman from taking another man's wife or another um, woman's husband. Jesus addresses this head-on in the Sermon on the Mount by even telling us that looking at another man or another woman with lustful intent is already committing adultery. It's all, so it's not about the act as much as it is about the lustful intent of the heart. So the underlying purpose of this entire command is a pure heart. God is wanting you to be pure. So what does it teach us about God? Some amazing things. Number one, God is pure. He's pure. And that he's holy. And like husbands and wives are supposed to be faithful to each other, God is always faithful. He's always faithful. He is the example for us when it comes to faithfulness. That he's also, again, an amazing gift giver. He's an amazing gift giver because inside the confines of the marriage covenant, God has given an amazing gift of this great gift of intimacy and enjoyment that you can have within a spouse. This is amazing. Outside of Jesus, um, there's not going to be a better gift that the Lord's going to give you of this, this intimacy that you can share with your spouse. What an amazing gift giver he is. Um, so those are the things that it teaches us. Next, um, verse 15, commandment 8, you shall not steal. Very simply, don't take what doesn't belong to you. It's pretty straightforward, right? If it's not yours, you can't have it. Um, The way to combat the heart that wants to steal is to be grateful for the things that the Lord has given you. He's given you things. Be grateful for them. Um, You must rejoice in what God's given you and what he gives you. You should steward it well. What does it teach us about God? It teaches us that he is the provider. God's the ultimate provider, not your sticky fingers, right? But he's the provider. I don't know that any of y'all are kleptos, but... Don't steal. Um, 
Verse 9, sorry, I shouldn't have said that. Verse 16, I didn't mean to make it sound trite. Verse 16, commandment 9. You shall not bear false witness, or in some translations, um, give false testimony. And this word testimony makes us, um, some people would say that even in the you know, early times that it was construed, this word testimony, that this idea of this commandment is just construed in the, in the setting of the courtroom is where you're supposed to always tell the truth. However, it's not just in that setting. This commandment applies to all settings, that in all settings, throughout your entire life, courtroom or not, that you're always in the quote-unquote courtroom of God and that you are to be truth-tellers. You are to be truth. This is what I say to my kids all the time. They're very familiar with it. Hey, um, fill in the blank. There's like five of them, six of them now. The chambers are truth-tellers because we love Jesus. The chambers, we're truth-tellers. When people talk about the chambers, what do they know? We're truth-tellers because we love Jesus. And so it's been hammered and ingrained into them. The chambers are truth-tellers because we love Jesus. And that's, that comes straight from this commandment. We are to be truth-tellers because we're Christians. We're truth-tellers. What does this then teach us about God? That God is truth and that God always tells the truth and that if you want to seek truth at the end of seeking truth, you will find God. And God never lies, ever. That's what it teaches us about God. So it's amazing attributes. Next one, um, Sale Hammer makes it two. I'm making it one. Verse 17, commandment number 10, you shall not covet, you shall not covet. And you can put house, wife, these aren't on the, on the screen, sorry. House, wife, etc. all these things, you shall not covet. This commandment is different than those other ones because this commandment doesn't necessarily deal with the act as much as it does the heart. This commandment uncovers for us this twisted, corrupt human, human nature that we have now because of the fall. It reveals for us, this commandment reveals perverse, distorted desires that we have because we're still products of Adam. Um, and it shows us how sin makes us discontent with the things that we have. This, this commandment, covetousness itself, is a feeling that we have that precedes the act of stealing, murdering, committing adultery, or whatever. Covetousness is the feeling that precedes. So covetousness is about your heart. It may not lead to an act. So you can say, well, I'm good because I didn't steal. I didn't lie. I didn't murder. I didn't commit adultery. But that doesn't mean that you didn't break this commandment because covetousness, the act may or may not happen. And it's difficult to see and especially difficult for others to see because we, we like to hide what's going on in our heart to people. But one covets and then they murder, then they steal, then they lie, etc. So what does this attribute, or first, covetousness is about the heart. So what does this attribute teach us then about God it teaches us about God's faithfulness and his goodness and that he never covets and that he has provided everything we had. So it teaches us that God's interested, much more interested in our heart. Um, although he's certainly interested in our outward actions as well. That's why he gave those other commandments. So these commandments, 1 through 10, are not just given to us as a list of rules. Instead, they also reflect to us God's character. So the commandments display for us the attributes of God to us. Um, in the first service, I skipped point five. I'm, I'm going to do that with y'all as well. Um, but what I'm doing in point five is I go to where Jesus does some teaching on the New Testament where he addresses the rich young ruler and the rich young ruler says, I've kept them all. And then, so basically Christ looks at him and says, okay, well then go sell everything. So the, the basic point is this. Um, the New Testament where Jesus teaches on the Ten Commandments, he teaches that it's about your heart. He teaches that it's absolutely about your heart. So I want to go to the, the last one, point number six, which is this, regarding the Ten Commandments. Jesus fulfills, this is the way the, the New Testament speaks, fulfills the Ten Commandments. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. I'll read it in just a second is where we, we see that. Jesus fulfills the commandments. But first, I want to finish the narrative. I want to finish the narrative. So God gives them the Ten Commandments, and now we're at verse 18. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning, the trumpet sound, and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid. Now, this is, I think, that Moses is down with the people, and they hear the Ten Commandments, and whenever they're over, they're freaked out, scared, because they understand the word awesome. Awesome! What we just displayed, what was just displayed before us, was literally awesome. 
And what does that do to me? It's not like, oh, bring God's presence. That'd be the best. Instead, if God's presence really were to come, this would be our response likely. They saw all, all these things. They saw the presence of God. They were afraid. They, they trembled and they stood far off. They, they jetted. They were gone. They're like, this is crazy. And they even said to Moses, they said to Moses, you speak to us and we'll listen, but don't let God speak to us lest we die. That was kind of scary. I, I can't even, I, 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 I can't even. So Moses, you're going to be the mediator. This is what was going to happen. We want you to go speak to God and you just come tell us. We don't want to talk to God. They literally self-appoint a mediator. Bad choice. But they do that. They self-appoint a mediator. You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may not be before you, that you may not sin. Now, they self-appoint a mediator. Jesus comes and he says that he's the fulfillment of these Ten Commandments. Matthew 5, 17 says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I'm not saying, hey, the law is no good. The Ten Commandments are no good anymore. Instead, they're still absolutely necessary, but I am going to fulfill them. I am going to keep them for you. And so now we have Jesus who stands and move over Moses. There's a truer and better Moses named Jesus. He is the perfect mediator ever. And now where they had to go through man to get to God, Jesus stands here as the mediator, and he is the man that gets to God, but he's also God. And now we have direct access to God by the God-man mediator, Jesus. And so he is a fulfillment of the Ten Commandments. They self-appointed Moses and said, be our mediator. Jesus comes in as the truer and better Moses, if you will, and now he is the mediator, the great mediator who is, who is God, and Jesus comes and fulfills the law for us because we were never able ever to keep God's laws perfectly, and we needed for someone else to come and do it for us, and now Jesus has come and kept every one of these commandments perfectly for us, and then the law, as we read these commandments, drives us to say, I can't do these things I never could, and instead of trying to keep them, the law doesn't drive us to white-knuckle and really try. Instead, it drives us to over to say, Jesus is my only hope. The only way I'm ever going to get forgiven and get a new heart is saying, Jesus kept these, for, these things for me, and that's the only way I'll ever be in the, with the prom, in the promised land. That's the only way I'll ever be forgiven of sin and be in, with heaven, in heaven with Jesus one day. So faith in Christ, that he kept the law for us. Then, when we put our faith in Christ, this is the best part, the Spirit comes in us, God himself, the Holy Spirit. And now we have the power to go and keep the commandments. And I joyfully keep the commandments, not to earn salvation or right standing, but I joyfully keep the commandments because now I have right standing with God forever. Jesus fulfills the law for us. And you don't have to. And you will keep the law now because Jesus kept it for you. That's, it's amazing. So our hope and our power doesn't come from our law keeping. It comes from his law keeping who did it for us perfectly. That's astounding. Isn't that, um, I would have never thought that up. As I self-appointed, I would have been the Israelite. Self, self-appoint Moses, you talk to him, not, <laughs> not me. And then the Lord knew all this was going to happen and said, I'm going to send the God man who will give them direct access back to God again by being the mediator and God himself. Amazing. Well, verse 21. The people stood far off. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Moses drew near. Because of Jesus, we can now draw near. So this means as we come to worship, we have full access to draw near. So here's what's going to happen. We're going to see a baptism video about Nick and how he came to know the Lord. I'm going to baptize him in the Arctic water here. And then after that, um, we're going to celebrate that Nick has been saved so, and that he's been baptized. Now, baptism is a reflection or a demonstration of something that's already happened. Baptism, being baptized, being under the water and come up does not save you. This is a demonstration of something that's already had. Nick, back in May, 
placed his faith in Jesus, said, Jesus, you kept the law for me perfectly. I couldn't do it. Yes, and now I am a Christian. This is a demonstration of saying, I once was, was dead in sin, and I'm being buried in that old life, and now I'm coming up out of the water saying I am a new creation. This is a, a gospel picture of what has already happened. This does not save in any way. But here's the thing. Um, baptisms are a pretty big deal. Not because they save, but because they give this amazing public demonstration that someone has already met Jesus. And so whenever someone's baptized, especially here at Remedy, we don't like to say, oh, good job. That's awesome. But instead, we like to do this. Woo! Yes! Awesome! Like, that's the kind of thing. So your favorite team scored, you won the Super Bowl, you won the World Series or whatever. Amplify that by a billion because someone has crossed over from death to life. And that's our response when it comes to baptism. So when Nick... It's gone down and come up out of the water. That's whenever we are super excited. And then right at that precise moment, it's amazing. Jordan's going to be standing right here. And he's going to tell us all to worship. And then as Moses drew near, we are going to draw near. And we're not going to speak to the Lord in vain. But instead, we're going to worship him with fullness of substance, fullness of heart. All right? So I'm going to pray. And then we'll have the video. And then baptism. And then we will worship together. Like it's awesome. Let's pray. And I mean awesome in the word awesome. Let's pray. Lord, you are awesome. You save sinners. We thank you. Be with us now as we celebrate this new life that's been given to Nick. And Lord, as we uh, worship you, I pray for anyone here that doesn't know you, that you would draw them to you. We pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.